What gets lost sometimes amid news of the pandemic, wars, inflation, politics, so much more is the continuing devastating and deadly impact that fentanyl is having on communities across North America. Just this week, the New York Times did a big report on a spike in overdose deaths among teenagers who purchased counterfeit pills online uh, through social media as well that are tainted with fentanyl. Overdoses are now the leading cause, the leading cause of preventable death among people ages 18 to 45 in America, and nearly 900 teenagers died of fentanyl overdoses in 2021 alone, 900 teenagers in America. Here in Canada, the picture isn't any less bleak. Uh, The numbers are smaller, obviously, but uh, nearly 27,000 people have died of suspected illicit drug overdoses between uh, January of 2016, September of last year, 20 people a day. 86% of those involve fentanyl. To put that into perspective, illicit fentanyl was detected in about 4% of drug toxicity deaths 10 years ago. Today, again, 86%. So knowing its effects are so deadly and so dangerous, why are we, and I'm talking about the collective we here, having such a difficult time trying to stop it or trying to at least curb it? If anything, it appears like it's getting worse. Well, Dr. Kavita Babu has witnessed the devastation firsthand as the chief of emergency medicine and a professor of toxicology at the UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. She writes that buying drugs on the street these days is a game of Russian roulette from Xanax to cocaine. Drugs or counterfeit pills purchased in non-medical settings may contain life-threatening amounts of fentanyl. Well, to discuss this more, uh, Dr. Babu joins me now from the greater Boston area. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Ben. This is, I mean, just from how you've described it and what you've written, this has been such a sea change in the way we see, um, you know, the, the power and, and the, the impact of, of lethal drugs on the streets. Uh, from, from just your standpoint, just how much of a change has fentanyl brought in the last few years or the last six years? Uh, it, it really, as you said, it's, it's been... Um it's been cataclysmic. The the sea change that we've seen is that we saw, we saw overdose deaths throughout many communities that that really weren't being, um, that weren't being elevated to the public health notice of our communities. And, And what I mean by that is that communities of color have been affected by the, the overdose epidemic and by the opioid epidemic for decades. The prescription opioid epidemic really brought this to, I think, more kind of mainstream or broader attention. And then what we saw was this shift uh, towards heroin, at least in the U.S., as, mm-hmm. as prescription opioids became less available. Quickly on the heels of that, we saw the transition to fentanyl, which is a high-potency opioid, meaning that it's it's much stronger than what our um, our patient population had encountered in the past. And unfortunately, it, it's become this this game of Russian roulette where every use of a fentanyl-containing product uh, on the street or in the illicit drug supply can precipitate a lethal overdose. What exactly is fentanyl? How does it work? Why is it so potentially lethal? Yeah, um, fentanyl is a it's it's an opioid painkiller that we actually have used in the hospital for decades. We use it for treating people with acute severe pain. We use it for folks who are going into surgery. 
Um, but what makes it so dangerous is that it is approximately um, 80 times more potent than morphine. And so we have, uh, again, this, this much stronger opioid that's widely available um, and that has now kind of made the jump from being available as something that was stolen from pharmacies or hospitals to something that's being manufactured internationally and trafficked to countries like Canada and the U.S. where it's entering the illicit drug supply. And there is just no way of knowing that, that it's in there. In, in, unless you're buying it on purpose, you, you, there's no way of knowing if you're a, if you're a drug user, it, it, there's no way of knowing what you're taking. That's a great question. And we've done some work exploring that. Uh, really, when it comes to looking at pills or powders, people can't tell the difference. So, you know, initially folks tried to tried to come up with ways that they thought they might be able to tell the difference back in the day between heroin and fentanyl. Now we see very little heroin in my town. Fentanyl has really replaced that supply. But to that point, there are some excellent harm reduction methods around drug testing strips where you can actually test the product that you're using, whether it's pills or a powder, to look for the inclusion of fentanyl. In the opioid supply, again, in my community, where really everything has been replaced by fentanyl, the utility of something like that is is difficult to understand but for you know young adults college kids who are using things like mdma or ecstasy um who are buying pills like xanax or or vicodin the fentanyl test strips can absolutely be a lifesaver and that's something that we're certainly trying to get um out into our communities because it it just helps to prevent an unintentional exposure to fentanyl, as you said. You raise an interesting point is just from, from, from where you are, how have you seen, and I, I hate to use the word profile, but how have you seen the profile of, of the overdose victim, the, the overdose fatality change since fentanyl arrived? Well, I think that again, like, um, what what we've seen is a, sort of a, a wider consciousness of of what opioid users were encountering for for decades prior to sort of the you know this portion of the epidemic. So what we're I think embracing as a medical community is this this idea of harm reduction and how to make drug use safer because. Any individual use, again, portends this this life-threatening risk of overdose. So what we've seen are things like, you know, these communities of users, people using together. How do you encourage that with things like supervised consumption sites? How do you get naloxone into the hands of the folks who are most likely to be able to use it at the site of an overdose? Um, Bystander naloxone distributions for families, for people who use opioids, I think those things are, are, are really critical. And then again, trying to introduce this idea that the illicit drug supply in all forms, whether we're talking about pressed pills that, that look like a pharmaceutical, these counterfeit pills or powders have to be tested for fentanyl in order to save a life. So I think it's really um, our recognition of what was already there to an extent has, has, has become much, much 
more robust. Um, but I think that our ideas about sort of a, a prohibition-based mindset to really trying to save lives in order to have time to get people into recovery, I, I think that's really the, the shift in the mindset that I've seen the most. What do you make of, of the fact that even though, I mean, here in where I am in British Columbia, we declared uh, a health emergency six years ago now, and yet deaths continue to climb. Uh, we've seen rises, uh, even as awareness has grown, we've seen more deaths. What do you think is behind that? And, 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 and how concerning is that? Uh, I, I think that's one of the most concerning parts of the of the epidemic response is just people are looking for a return on their investment and they're looking to bend the curve. But I think that we have to really understand the role that I think the pandemic has played in worsening all elements of this crisis as well. So, you know, senses of a sort of social disconnectedness, a lack of access to treatment, financial stressors. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, I, I guess from where I sit, where I see that we've been really focused on, on finding any sort of, of harm reduction methodology or, or, you know, trying to limit barriers to treatment. When, when you see the numbers go up, all I can think to myself is what would it look like if we weren't doing these things? But I, I hear the politicians and the, the policymakers and, and the folks who uh, control the funding for these types of programs, you know, looking, looking to see an effect. And I, I think that we're still right now in the midst of, of understanding how COVID is driving some of these overdose deaths as well. I'm speaking with Dr. Kavita Babu, uh, chief medical, a uh, chief of medical toxicology uh, at the professor of emergency medicine at UMass's Chan Medical School uh, in uh, in Boston. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about how, uh, first of all, the fact that fentanyl itself has now been changed as well into even more potent, uh, potent drugs, and, and just how, uh, how dangerous it is now, how much it has permeated every uh, facet of the illicit drug industry. That's after this. I'm speaking with Dr. Kavita Babu, Chief of Medical Toxicology and a Professor of Emergency Medicine at UMass Chan's Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, we've been talking about fentanyl, just the, the how much it has permeated uh, the illicit drug industry in North America, Canada, of course, we know well, uh, the United States as well, and just how dangerous it has become, uh, something that uh, taking illicit drugs uh, that Dr. Babu refers to as, as Russian roulette, something we've uh, heard from other uh, medical professionals as well. Um, I was reading an interesting stat that 98%, according to Canadian statistics, 98% of illicit drug overdoses related to fentanyl are unintentional. And that really tells you something about just how much people don't, don't know the consequences or, or, or are put in a situation where they're, they're really putting their lives in danger every time they touch an illicit drug. No, it, it's true. And, and we're seeing that borne out here as well. And there is, you know, even even beyond the potency of fentanyl, a lot of times these these pressed pills or powders they're sort of um, very heterogeneous, and so we've even encountered situations where there are multiple people using from the same supply, where one of them will um, will present in the setting of a of a non fetal overdose, and we're able to interview them after the fact. And so sometimes it's it's um, 
you know, just a matter of, of hitting that particular hotspot in the mixture of the drugs. Sometimes it's that individual's particular loss of tolerance or escalation in their drug use. But there are just there's these these overdoses are are certainly multifaceted, but they're just driven by the potency of fentanyl and the fact that, it, yeah, it always poses a, that risk of lethal overdose. What about carfentanil? We, we've heard about it, um, I guess, over the last few years, it's become more of a talking point. Uh, what is carfentanil and, and is it even more of a threat? You know, uh, there, there, in the in the past few years, we've had a lot of um, a lot of discussions about these fentanyl analogs, and there are many. There are simple substitutions that can be made in sort of the structure of fentanyl that lead to dozens um, of different of different fentanyl analogs that have been identified by some of the laboratories that do excellent work in this area. Carfentanil is a, a particularly interesting one because it is so much more potent than fentanyl. It's used for veterinary purposes of, of analgesia and sedation. Um, and so people will call it like the animal tranquilizer when they're when they're talking about it sometimes. But really, when you look at at where the rubber hits the road in terms of the overdose deaths, Despite some of these analogs having, you know, sort of the the reputation of being a super fentanyl, it's it's fentanyl. It's it's fentanyl that's causing the majority, um, and and yeah, like you said, ninety six percent of these of these um, unintentional overdoses related to fentanyl. It's it's the parent compound still that tends to cause the most trouble. And you must just just from your day to day work, you must have to confront some some truly awful situations when it comes to the the impact of these overdoses. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, I think when, when Massachusetts, when my community first met fentanyl in 2016, 2017, I work as an emergency physician and the number of parents that I told about the deaths of their children in, in those years was staggering. Um, it's, it's haunting to have to tell these folks that they're, that their adolescent or young adult or their, their partner or their parent was lost to an overdose. And really that spurred a lot of the work that I do in this area, because those are, those are interactions that, you know, I'm, I'm simply bearing witness to. I'm, I'm not the person who is, is grieving or had that loss. And they're still so, so painful to think about years later, I think in many ways, um, <laughs> in many ways we're seeing less of that, but not for the right reasons. Um, unfortunately, in a, my community, we've seen that uh, calls for ambulances and EMS visits related to overdose have gone down while deaths have gone up. And unfortunately, I think that there are just, uh, you know, so many unattended overdose deaths because people are, are using in private spaces, because the pandemic has sort of taken us out of our usual routines, that unfortunately, um, you know, breaking bad news related to overdoses, in some ways has become less common in the hospitals, but is certainly ongoing in our community. Given that, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel here? Do you see anything? We've seen the numbers of deaths go up, of course, through the pandemic. Uh, British Columbia, Canada is no different. Uh, do you see any light at the end of this tunnel? 
I do. Um, and that, that's, I, I think, sort of the, the richest part of my work is that I get to work with folks who um, have opioid use disorders in shelters, uh, in, in our local food pantry, and just we are able to engage people into treatment where they are. We're able to sort of knock down a lot of barriers in terms of engaging them with, uh, with Suboxone, buprenorphine, Naloxone, a, a life-saving medication for opioid use disorder. And when we see folks sort of leave the environment of, of entrenched drug use and be able to kind of start, you know, reclaiming different parts of their life, getting into housing, getting into to sort of more traditional or more structured treatment. Um, it's awesome. It, it's really cool. And you know what, Ben, I think that the, the, the message that shouldn't get lost in all of this is that recovery is not only possible, it's the norm if people have time. And so I think that what we're doing is a, a lot of this focus on saving lives is just buying people the time taken uh, to get them into recovery and to put their their sort of uh, fentanyl use behind them. Evita Babu, thank you so much for your time. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you for focusing on this issue. It's really appreciated.